The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, good evening, everyone. We are going to be in a difficult text tonight. And it's difficult for me because I think, like most of you, I'm wired to seek out clarity, to find a reason, to find purpose, to figure out exactly why it's there and what it's supposed to be telling me. And as I look to clarity in this text, especially in there's a certain portion of the text, it's difficult. I mean, I've, I've read a number of commentaries. I've looked at it every way that I can think of. And just to try and figure it out, so far I've found very difficult. And so there will be tonight some things that we read and and I'm sure that we're going to disagree or I'm sure that maybe we can mutually come to an agreement that we don't know the answer but that's okay because there are also things in this passage tonight that are abundantly clear that are very helpful for us and so my prayer is tonight that as we go through this we will be able to to figure out what it is that God is making clear to us in our text tonight and then follow that because the truth is There is always going to be things in the Bible that we don't fully understand. The Bible is a divine book. It transcends us. And God is wonderful that he's made himself known to us in it. And that he's allowed us to understand it. But there are still sections that we're always going to struggle with. And so I hope tonight this just reminds us that that we'll never figure the whole thing out. Um, We're in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And my goal tonight is to open up and read the passage without any comments. I want to be able to read the whole thing through so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. And then we're going to revisit those verses and open up the box of confusion, that is verses 18 to 21, and hopefully shine some light on them and try and look at some of the different ways of understanding those verses. But then what I want to do is I want to focus our, our, the remainder of our time and our application on what we find in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Because the point that Peter's making and the the theme of the end of verse 18 is the reason for verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. The application is based on the truth that we find in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. And so we will conclude by stating and applying the truths that are easily seen in those remaining verses. All right, so let's get into the text. Just to remind you what we've been in so far in the preceding verses... Peter has been preparing God's people for suffering. His message to them is very simple. Suffering is a fact of life in a fallen world. All people suffer. God's people ought to avoid the suffering that is caused by their own sin. And we can avoid some of the suffering of this life just by obeying the commands of God. God's commands are good. They're not given to us to hurt us. They're given to us for our benefit. And so we can avoid some suffering just by obeying the Lord. So there is sufficient suffering that should be avoided, but there's also suffering that should not be avoided. And this is the suffering that God placed in our lives, sometimes through persecution, sometimes through sickness, sometimes through our circumstance. But God is putting that in our life for a number of good reasons. Uh, Mainly of all, to bring himself glory. Okay, All all of what happens to us, ultimately, the, the purpose of our lives and the purpose of us being created was to give God glory. But beyond that, we find that it's in our suffering that we can often have the greatest impact on other people. That people see how we walk through suffering and it's so unique and so different from how 
unbelievers walk through suffering, and it's a testimony to God and his strength and his power and his ability to carry his people through suffering. And secondly, we find that, or finally we find, that suffering is wonderful at helping us as believers grow. There are many lessons that we learn only in the valley. And so suffering helps us to go through those valleys and to test us and to help us to grow into who God wants us to be. And so we'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 3.18, knowing that he's just been speaking about suffering. Verse 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which were sometime disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. For as much then, as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. So as we read that, I, I hope and I believe that there were many things that stood out to you as true and wonderful and right. But I also think that as we read it, you must have at some point gone, what? <laughs> like, what is he talking about there? I, did, did anybody do that? Okay. Did, did any of you read it and you were like, no, that makes perfect sense. I got, I got that figured out. Nobody said yes, but about two people said they actually were confused. So that means most of you weren't paying attention, which is <laughs> not a great start. <laughs> All right, verse number 18. I know, you're, it's not that you weren't paying attention, it's just you're too rebellious to answer. Just like John Crenny, when Pastor wanted him to give a number. That was great. <laughs> like, I'm not putting my hand. That's what I was like in class. If somebody was like, we're going to do a survey, I'm like, I'm not going to put up my hand because I just, I'm not going to give you an answer because I know you want one. And so, that's your spirit. Good job. <laughs> Verse number 18. I'm kidding. Verse number 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. This is the gospel. I mean, theologians call the gospel, one of the ways to explain what Christ did, what was accomplished on the cross, as penal substitutionary atonement. I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, but if not, you're going to learn something tonight. Penal substitutionary atonement is the best way to describe what Christ accomplished on the cross. And that is laid out for us perfectly here. Christ suffered for sins. He suffered not as, re- as a result of his sin. He suffered for the sins of another. So he was penalized for the sins of another. Substitutionary is the just for the unjust. That it wasn't his own sins he was suffering for. It was the sins of another. That, that, he, that it was the just suffering for the sins of the unjust. And atonement is to bring us to God. So Christ went to the cross and he suffered for sins. He suffered for our sins and he did it to bring us to God or to make us at one with God. Atonement at one meant. 
Okay, at one with God. So we are atoned and made right with God because of what Christ did on the cross. That part is abundantly clear. What that means is that Christ didn't go to the cross just to be an example. He didn't go to the cross just to um, pay some kind of debt to Satan. He didn't just go on the cross so that he could be a, star, a martyr and start his own religion. He went to the cross because that was the only way for us to be at one with God, to, to be brought to God. God's wrath was kindled against us, and we lived as his enemies. Prior to knowing Christ as Savior, we are the enemies of God. And so Christ went to the cross to change all of that. He went to the cross so we could be called sons and daughters of God, so we could be his friends, so we could be made right with him, so we could be atoned. That is a wonderful truth. If we would actually stop and think about how glorious that is, it would, it would move us. Okay? That is enough right there to change everything about your life. Peter has now made a connection between our suffering and Christ, but he's making the point that Christ's suffering was unique. Now the confusion begins in the last phrase of verse 18. In the last phrase of verse 18, all by itself, doesn't seem that confusing. The problem is, as Whatever you think the last phrase of verse 18 means is going to affect how you translate the following verses. And so if you go one direction in verse 18, then you have to carry that through in the next couple verses. And no matter what direction you go, it's going to be very difficult for you. Okay, so I'll show you what I mean. In the last phrase of verse 18, it says, Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. There are many ways to understand this phrase. In the Greek, it it literally just says, being put to death flesh, but quickened spirit. So so the in the flesh and by the aren't there anywhere in the Greek. They're just what we need to use in English to, to try and make this make sense. The problem is, in the flesh and by the spirit mean different things, right? And so... One of the ways, if there's three ways that I'll share with you, and there are, there are other ways as well, but three ways to understand this is, first of all, that we are put to death, that, that Christ was put to death by the flesh, meaning he was killed by flesh, by human beings, but he was raised by the spirit. So it's speaking about the agent. The flesh and the spirit are the agents of what happened to him. Christ was killed by humans, raised by the spirit. Another way to understand it is that he was put to death in the flesh, meaning his physical body was killed, but he was raised in the spirit, meaning his, the spirit of Jesus. So his spirit, not, not the Holy Spirit, but, but his human spirit was raised. And then the, last, the third way to understand it is that he was put to death, death in the realm of the flesh, so in the world, in, in the earth, but he was quickened in the spiritual realm. Okay? Now, those are three different ways to, to understand it, but it gets even more complicated when a lot of theologians, what they do is they'll take one aspect, so they'll say he was put to death in the flesh, meaning his body was killed, but he was raised by the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit as an agent. So it's not even a a contrast there, it's two different things happening. And that is how the King James actually translates it. They have the Spirit capitalized there, that's how they understand it to, to work. But As we look at the phrase, it's really hard for us to figure out what exactly he means. The prevailing opinion, the vast majority of commentators that I read, and they're very conservative evangelical commentators, um, believed that it was Jesus' body that was killed, 
And it's Jesus' spirit that was made alive. So it's his human spirit that was made alive. So that Jesus' body lay dead in the tomb for three days, but his spirit was disembodied. And it went somewhere. And it did something. Okay? So is everybody with me now? Is everybody complete? Because this is, this is the very beginning of this. So, yeah? Okay. Verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So he was raised in the spirit or by the spirit, but we're saying he was raised in the spirit. And honestly, I would love to spend three days here and try and explain all of the different options, but pastor said we don't have time for that. <laughs> he told me not to do that. Um, and it's a, it's a smart idea not to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to go with this, in this. He was killed in the flesh and in the spirit. And so now we find out that by which, so by his spirit, in his spirit, also he went and he preached to the spirits in prison. There's three words there we have to understand. The first one is he preached. Most of the time we hear somebody say preached, we think that it's, it's one person preaching to another person who at the end hopefully will make a decision for right. But the word preached there literally just means proclaimed. So there's not, it's not evangelized. It's not told the good news with, a, with the hope of some response. Now, a lot of times we do preach, we proclaim truth, and we hope for a response. But all that we need to understand here is that that wasn't necessarily what was being said. That he could have just been proclaiming truth to people unable to respond. The second word is the spirits. Who are the spirits that he's proclaiming to? And the word the spirits everywhere in the New Testament refers to um, angels or demons, this particular Greek word. And so it it's, looks like it's referring to demons or angels, fallen angels, that are in prison. The word prison doesn't just mean bondage or they're captive to something. It is a literal place. It is a cage or a prison. Okay? So are, are you getting me? So, so Jesus, in his spirit, went somewhere, proclaimed something to evil fallen spirits who are now in prison. Verse number 20. Which sometimes, so which, who, who is which? It's the spirits. So it's these spirits, these evil spirits, sometime were disobedient when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. So these, these were sometimes disobedient. At, at one point, they were disobedient. When did that happen? It, it happened in the days of Noah when, when Noah was building the ark. And then he says, a few were saved by water. Now, what most people do that are trying to figure this out is they go back to Genesis and they read the account of the flood and say, okay, can we figure out who the spirits are that he's talking about there? And in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, you have the story of um, sons of God coming to earth and, and laying with the daughters of men. So these are, are fallen angels, or that's what most people believe. These are talking about fallen angels who come to earth and sleep with the daughters of men and they have children. They're called the Nephilim. Now again, I mean, the, the whole Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 might be the second most confusing passage of scripture in the Bible. So we're not getting a lot clearer when we go there and we try and say, yeah, this is exactly who he was talking about. But if you go with those being the fallen angels, then, then that would actually fit with this theory. In Jude chapter 1 verse 6, 
it says the angels which, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So the chains here, the word chains is the same word that is prison. So what we're finding here is he's saying there are some angels that are actually reserved in prison that had left their habitation and done, and done something wrong. And so we're, I mean, I know we're, ta- we're making leaps. But we're saying here is angels, fallen angels that are in prison during the days of Noah. Maybe Jesus went and proclaimed something to them. What he proclaimed, I don't know exactly. I would imagine he just proclaimed that he was victorious over death, over the grave. So now we move on to the days of Noah, and, and then it's like Peter's brain just all of a sudden goes in a different direction. And it's, he goes from talking about these fallen angels that Jesus is proclaiming something to, to um, eight souls being saved by water, which I guess makes sense. It's connected with Noah. But then look what he does in verse number 21. Verse number 21, he says, The like figure... Whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he uses the the mention of Noah to then bring up baptism, the like figure or corresponding to that, even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. So it's, it's not just the removing of dirt from your flesh. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus marks Jesus' victory over sin in the grave. We understand that, right? When he resurrected, it was proof that he was who he said he was, and he accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Baptism does not point it does not all by itself save us, but it does point out the need for a resurrected Savior. What I mean is the word baptism means immersed, and when we look at what baptism was in the, in the Bible, it was symbolic of what happened to us when we were saved. And so it's, it's pointing to the gospel. It's pointing to the fact that, that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. And even the act of baptism, you have a person with another person who is bringing them down and then And then a person is being raised back up, not by their own power, but by the arm of another. So they're raised back up to life by another. This is the the symbol of baptism. We find all throughout Scripture very clearly that baptism itself doesn't save us. So I know some people will go to 1 Peter 3, 21, and they'll say, look it, it says baptism saves us. Well, first of all, we have to look at the context. And yes, some of the context is confusing, but... Before the, the assumption would be that the water saved Noah. So, if corresponding to that, the water saved Noah. But did the water actually save Noah? No. So, obviously, there we're, we're, it's, he's using that in a typical sense. He's using that in a, uh, an allegorical sense. Because the water didn't save Noah. It was the ark that saved Noah and saved his family. And so, the ark is actually the agent of salvation. The, all that the water did is it demonstrated that Noah was the one that was saved in the ark, right? The water brought them up. So it was the water that showed that everybody else was not saved, and the water demonstrated that Noah and his family was saved. But according to God, he'd already kind of chosen and decided what was, what was going to happen there. And so here we have 
a lot of allegory and trying to work our way through it. And it's just not a good idea to make our final decision on what baptism does based on one verse that is very confusing. Um, and so this is not the proof that baptism saves. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and see what Peter thought actually saved. He says in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What, what is it that saves us? What is it that makes us alive again? It's the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what, that's what saves us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul is very clear why he went out to preach, what he was supposed to be doing. He said, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. If, if baptism was saving people, do you think Paul would be glorying the fact that his job, his primary duty, was to preach the gospel and not to baptize? No, not at all. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's very clear. It's the blood of Christ that washes us from all sin. Baptism does not wash away the filth of the flesh. Only the blood of Christ can do that. What baptism does is it points to what saves us. It points to the death of Christ. It points to his burial. It points to his resurrection. So that's what Peter's talking about here. He goes on into verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Peter draws our attention back to Christ and he says, Yes, Christ suffered and died. Yes, he was suffering for you and he made you right with God. And his suffering was excruciating and terrible and horrible. But here we see that Christ is now raised up and he's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And all of heaven and all of the angels and all of powers and all authorities and everything in this universe now proclaims him as king. Now, that's not true of human beings at this point. There are many human beings that don't. But that won't always be the case. And so Christ is already now sitting on the throne, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the day that's coming. And so yes, Christ suffered, but his suffering was temporary. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise. With the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Peter here helps us understand how all of this applies to us. This message, this this truth that he gives us here, that he's been giving us in this text. Now, I know that there is a confusing part, but at the beginning there, then he says Christ is now enthroned, Now he says in the same way we must be ready. That is central to the Christian message. That is central to to all Christian growth. We can't do Christianity without this truth. It's meaningless. We are powerless. Christ suffered for you. Penal substitutionary atonement. We have been 
by no effort or merit of our own, been brought right with God. Therefore, Peter says, we must be ready to suffer for him in this life. We must be ready to give up some of our sinful habits. Those lusts, the word lust there is these, these driving passions inside of us. We must be willing to submit those to him. We must be willing to die to ourselves to live unto God. So we must be ready to beat our flesh into submission so that we don't always react in selfishness and in anger and in pride. So it's not always about us. I mean, that is our, that is our basic condition, isn't it? And he's saying because what Christ did, we must be willing to, to bring ourselves into the submission of Christ. Just like now he's enthroned in heaven and the angels are subject to him. We must be subject to him. Those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin. This is an interesting phrase that he uses. And and when we first read it, it's like, okay, this is, again, a confusing thing. But I really don't think it is that confusing. I I think what what Peter is saying is, we know and we understand this, that when you go through suffering, it really makes you think about your life, doesn't it? It makes you consider what's really important. It it makes you um, maybe sometimes let go of those things that aren't so important and cling to the things that are. See, Suffering, going through these tests, it's, it is very helpful for us. It oftentimes, it proves us. It cleanses us. It's like silver going through a fiery furnace that is tried, and, it's, and it comes out purer than it was before. That's what suffering does for us. And so when he says, those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin, I think he's just saying, when you go through suffering, if you're a believer and through suffering you cling to God, then you come out that suffering on the other side much better than you were when you went in. That you become more holy. If you ever want to test a soldier, I mean, in real life, you want to test a soldier, you can't do it in the gym, right? I mean, you can figure out who can lift the most in a gym if that's the only test you care about, but you're not going to see how somebody acts in a real-life battle situation. You're not going to see if they have courage. You're not going to see if they have loyalty. You're not going to see if they have the strength it takes to get through those difficult situations. You can't test in the gym. You can't test it on paper. Just because they know all the right answers doesn't mean they're going to act the right way in the battle. And so if you want to test a soldier, you have to to put them in a battle. That's the only way to do it. And you see what they're made of. And it is the same thing for believers with suffering. Suffering can bring clarity to our lives. It helps us to say, you know what, there's some things I don't understand, but I don't need to, because all I need to do is cling to the one that that does understand, the one that's in control. We don't need to know why. We realize for the first time that Christ is all we have, and Christ is all we need. I remember this time, it was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life, and it was just like a weird, like, um, all of this was going on. So it was when Tara was, was giving birth to Landon. And very quickly, it went from like just a normal birth to a, this is terrifying, what's, what's going on here? And so Tara's rushed in a different room, and, and I was trying to find my way in there, and they kicked me out. So I went in the back way, and they kicked me out again. And then they sent me down the hallway. And they said, okay, just like wait in this room, and in about 10 minutes, we'll come and get you and let you know how all of, all of this went. And those 10 minutes, you can do a lot of thinking. And I like to be in control. I like to be able to do something and to fix and to whatever I can do. And here's a case where you're like, these other people have taken my wife and taken my, my new baby, 
and they're in a different room, and there's absolutely nothing I can do, and there is, there, I have no control, and the only thing at that moment I can do is, is to turn to God and say, God, they're in your hands. Uh, there's nothing, I mean, I can't fix it. I can't make this right, but I need you to, to work. And what that experience did, and I'm not saying I have this down, I certainly don't, but what that experience taught me is that sometimes when we go through those difficult times, we realize what has always been true. That all we have is Christ and all we need is Christ. Right? That, that we have a Savior who loves us and he, and he can go on our behalf and he can work and that we're not in control, even though we might hope we are and wish we were and want to be, that we're not. And so what we need to do is just go to God and say, God, help me. And what, that's what suffering can do in your life. And so it's not always a bad thing. The goal is that we live our lives not to please ourselves. It's not about fulfilling the lusts of our flesh, and it's not to please other people either. The goal is to please the Lord and to do his will. And that's exactly what he says in verse 2, that we no longer should live the rest of this time. We have a short time on earth. Keep that in mind. You have eternity to look forward to. You have one short life. There'll be one time that you're 18 years old. One time that you're in high school. One time that you get to spend that, those years with your kids. So we have this short life. And he says that we don't live our lives. We, we live the rest of our lives, our time in the flesh, not to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. We live this one life we have to please our Lord, to, to do his will. That's the goal. And so tonight we come to this text that is confusing. There is a lot of that that I still have more questions than answers. When I go through that and I, and I look at all of what the text is saying and all of what the words mean, then the, the explanation that I gave you, to me, is the only one that tries to make best sense of the text. And it still is just, I'm still, I'd be still shocked if that was right. I mean, I still, I still don't know exactly where Jesus went and what he said and why he went there and whether it was the Holy Spirit that raised him up or whether it was just in his spirit. I don't know all the answers to those things. But I don't want us to leave tonight as confused as I've felt for the last couple weeks. (laughs) I want us to leave tonight with something that we can apply to our lives, some truths that are helpful for us. And so what I want to do before we finish is I want to give you four truths that I think are invaluable. If you'll just cling to even one of these truths, they'll help you in your life. The first one is this. Christ loves you so much that he suffered and died for your sin and in your place to bring you to God. Let's make this personal. Christ loves you so much that he saw you as a wicked sinner. He saw you as an enemy. And he went to the cross to pay for your sin, the debt that you owed. Why? So that he could bring you to God. So everything good in your life is from him. All of your hope of eternal life is because of him. You've not merited anything. All of this is grace. This is our only hope. And as a believer, this is what motivates us and what empowers us to fight for personal holiness. It's what motivates us and empowers us to do the will of God. Right? 
because I know what Christ has done for me, because I know my sins are forgiven, because I know I can have victory through Christ, then I get up and I try and fight for holiness. And I fall, yes, absolutely, but then I get back up because I know what he has done for me. This motivates us more than anything else. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it's all about now. It's all about knowing what he's done for you, and then letting him live through you. Crucifying your own flesh. Crucifying all of those fleshly lusts that war against the soul, all of that that's against God, submitting that to him and saying, God, I'm just going to try and live for you. Please live through me. And we do that because he loved us so much that he died in our place to bring us to God. You cannot save yourself. You will not find strength within yourself to change. All is vain without Christ. But all in Christ are victorious. And so we should live in Christ. Truth number two. Just as the water lifted those who were in the ark, so does going through the waters of baptism symbolize those who have been crucified with Christ and are saved by his death and resurrection. So this is, again, not baptismal regeneration. This is not you're saved by baptism. The ark is a type of Christ. The water only saved those who were already safe in the boat. The water revealed them as being saved. Believer's baptism is a powerful picture of the gospel. We are put to death in the flesh. We are raised by the power of another to walk in newness of life. And you're changed. You ever notice you go into baptism and what's true of you? It's true of every person that goes into baptism. They're dry, right? And they come out changed. I mean, even that, just a little thing, all of it is symbolic. They're wet, right? All of it is just in line with what the gospel is supposed to be. We become immersed in the water just because, just like we are now in Christ, immersed in him. This is the expectation of believers, that all of us, when we follow Christ in salvation, will obey him in believer's baptism. And so you can be saved without it, right? Paul said he was there to preach the gospel and not to baptize. And, and you would never say something like that if baptism was required for salvation. So you can absolutely be saved without it. But the million-dollar question is, why would you refuse? I, I always thought, when I was 15, 16 years old, I was like, yeah, I, no, I, I know I'm saved now, but why do I need to get baptized? I mean, what, is, what is that going to do? And you're right, it's not going to change your standing before God. But why would you refuse? This is what God has designed to identify you with Christ. Right? When you get in the water, you're saying, I'm a believer, I have been crucified with Christ, and now I live, but it's not me, it's Christ living in me. That's what the whole picture is. And so why would you refuse that? Truth number one, Christ loves us. Truth number two, baptism is a good deal. It doesn't save you, but it's a good thing to do. Truth number three, Christ's suffering was excruciating, but it was also temporary. It was excruciating, but it was temporary. He is now 
reigning as king and is seated at the right hand of God. So his suffering, yes, it was unique. He was suffering on the behalf of another. But his suffering reminds us that we follow a crucified Lord. That he just like his suffering was excruciating, ours might be difficult at times. Maybe not to the same extent. But, I mean, people go through very dark waters, right? But just like Christ's suffering was temporary, so was ours. And just like right now he is up on the throne reigning, someday we will be with him reigning forever and ever. And so just, I mean, he was willing to suffer for us, so we are willing to suffer for him. His suffering came to an end. Our suffering will come to an end. He is now in glory forever and ever. We will be someday too. Suffering will cease. As a believer, no matter what you're going through now, you can be comforted by the fact that, like Christ's suffering was, yours is only temporary as well. The glory is on the other side of this life. The glory is so great that when Paul caught a glimpse of it, he thought it would be better to be dead and gone and with Christ than to be here. There's a song that says, Glory by the way of shame. And uh, I like the song. I think it's a great song. But I think it may be more accurately, Glory by the way of pain. A lot of time, it's, it's through the, the pain that we will one day receive glory. Uh, John Phillips is a good commentator. He actually writes a lot on these verses and was helpful. And he wrote this. He said, Peter put puts things into perspective. In the end, suffering cannot hurt us. It lifts us up, even by its own tumultuous waves, to higher ground and even to that other shore. Let Nero do his worst. All he can do is kill the body. Beyond that is resurrection. All we see down here are the seemingly tangled threads on the reverse side of the tapestry of life. When we get to heaven, we shall see the magnificent picture on its other side. Meanwhile, Christ is on the throne. I thought that was very helpful. We see the reverse side of the tapestry. We see all the threads tangled together and none of it seems to make sense to us. And what he says to us is, listen, I suffered. Be willing to suffer for me. Trust me in it. Someday the suffering will end and you'll be with me forever. And someday all of this chaos and confusion will make sense. There's a purpose behind it. Truth number four. Believers are now called to leave the bondage of our flesh and to live to do the will of God, even when that will involve temporary pain. Believers are now called to leave leave the bondage of the flesh, to, to not allow our flesh to control us. Because of all that's come before, we now live differently. Christ has suffered in the flesh. The Bible says, arm yourselves likewise. The word arm yourselves is the only time in the whole New Testament that we find this word. And it it means get ready as a soldier. It means prepare for battle. Be prepared to fight like a soldier would prepare to battle. If a soldier was preparing for battle, what would they do? They'd put all their armor on? Would they just like flippantly throw stuff wherever? No, they wouldn't. They would prepare well. They would be careful. They would be purposeful. So this is something that just doesn't happen to you, right? You don't just sit back and say, okay, flesh is dead. Now what? Arm yourselves likewise. In the same way, prepare yourself carefully, purposefully, 
Get yourself ready to live the life you're supposed to live. Because if you don't, do you know what's going to happen? Your lusts take over and they drive you. And they'll keep driving you until you purposefully put to death your flesh. You will never see victory. You need to put to death your flesh and you need to walk in the Spirit. And when we do that, then we, we fulfill the will of God. And we bring him glory and we do what he wants us to do. And that is what it's all about. I've got to tell you, I've been looking at this text for weeks now, and it's because we had communion last week and Easter the week before, and I was like, man, what's, what's going to happen here? Like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get through that part of the passage? And then I saw this picture where, where Peter begins, and he says, look what Christ has done for you. And then, yeah, there's some confusion in here, but then he says, but Christ is now reigning on the throne. And then he says, get ready to suffer like he did because someday you'll be with him. I mean, I mean, all of it then just, it made sense, right? Yeah, okay, there's parts of it that I don't get, but there's something very clear for me in my life that I can do. I can remind myself every day what my Savior's done for me. I can remind myself that today, right now, he's on the throne going to God on my behalf. I can remind myself every day that whatever difficulty I experience, it's only temporary. I can remind myself that one day I'll be with him forever so I can get up and I can try and kill my flesh and I can try and live for God. That's what God calls us to do. And when we do that, better for us, ultimately it will bring God glory. That's what we're created for. So let's, let's pray.